The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Uh, grab a Bible, Ephesians chapter 1. I would love to, to walk us through this passage this evening. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of serving as the pastor here at Citizens. We're a brand new church plant uh, here on the east side of Charlotte, trying to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. Ephesians chapter 1. Let me pray for us and just get our, our hearts and our minds centered around the good news of Jesus. God, we are so grateful. And so it's a privilege every single week to get to gather with your people. God, I'm just reminded this week of how much we need the church. This outpost in a fallen, broken world. We get to gather together for just a little bit to remember that even though everything around us feels broken and uncertain and wrong, that you're still on the throne you're still king, that you're still God, that you're still good, that you're still sovereign and in control, and that you're still working all things for your glory and for our good. And I pray that as we look at Ephesians 1, that you will just wash us in the good news of the gospel, be shaped, changed by what is true about all of us who trust in you, not because of us and because of what we've done, but because of Jesus on the cross on our behalf, dead, buried, but also risen again. We love you. We need you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we're starting a new series today, if you haven't guessed, on the book of Ephesians. We're going to be uh, camping out in this book all the way through the month of June. So the next 14 weeks, we're going to be just kind of deep diving into the book. Garrison set us up really well last week, kind of closing our Acts series in Acts 19. So if you haven't listened to it, it's on the podcast. would encourage you to grab that. And he told us and walked us through the story of how Paul took the gospel to a city called Ephesus and how the gospel just took shape there. It just disrupted the lives of the whole city, and it just changed everything. And then all we have here in the book of Ephesians is a letter that Paul's going to write seven years later in house arrest, under house arrest in Rome, back to the church at Ephesus, wanting to encourage them in the good news of the gospel and what Jesus has done for them. And there's a ton of theological depth and truth and practical application in this book. And so we have a few things that we're going to do in this series to help you. The first is we have a handout that gives an overview background of the book. It's on your pew. Feel free to take that home with you. Read it sometime this week. We also have a reading and memorization scripture plan that one of our members wrote that's just awesome that is going to carry you through. A lot of people have been asking, do I do this instead of the Lent guide? Uh, You can do it with the Lent guide for two more weeks, and then once Easter happens, you can just do this full in. Uh, But take that home with you as well. It's also on our website. The third thing we're going to be doing is we're going to be rolling out a brand new podcast this coming week, hopefully every Wednesday don't hold us to it, but hopefully every Wednesday it'll be a conversational podcast. We'll get to dive a little bit deeper into something that either got cut out of the sermon because of time or something we just want to talk more about because we think it'll be helpful for us as a church. And so lots of resources to help you. You have to use them, all right? We're we're gonna equip you as much as we can. You have to take advantage of these resources for yourself. Let me set us up for where we're going today. Ephesians 1, we're gonna look at 1 through 
14. And I prepare two weeks out for sermons. So I'm thinking about the outline and the flow and, and what I want to hit on in that passage. And so last Monday morning, I got up and I went down to Lindsay and I's basement in our house and I started digging into the text. And I was reading commentaries and doing all the Greek and all that fun stuff, trying to get my head around what is this passage saying and how does it apply into the lives of me and into the lives of our church family. And something happened in that moment. 8 a.m. on a normal Monday morning in a basement in Southeast Charlotte, and the Lord just broke through. I was telling some of our community group guys uh, the following Tuesday evening when we were meeting that I could describe it nothing short of just a little mini personal spiritual revival. Like the Lord just broke through in a tangible, manifest type of way where I was just so aware in that mundane moment in a basement of how good Jesus is. How good news the gospel is for us. And so my prayer unashamedly, locked and loaded for the past 13 days, is that the Lord would do some of that tonight. In your heart, maybe you've been coming around since we started as a church. Maybe that the gospel is going to hit you fresh tonight in a beautiful, wonderful way with something you just haven't thought about in a while. Maybe you're new and the gospel is going to hit you for the very first time. And you're going to see the good news of Jesus. That's my prayer for us, is that as we meditate on what can so easily be some abstract theological truths about God, that it would actually affect our hearts in a way that we cannot explain except the Spirit. That's my prayer for us. Ephesians 1, we're going to start in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you'd like to write in your Bible, underline that phrase, every spiritual blessing. We're about to enter into, in the next uh, verses 3 through 14, is kind of Paul's big summary of the gospel. It's kind of his big overarching, here's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And verse 3 is a little bit of a summary of that. So this whole passage in your English Bible is broken up into three or four sentences, but in the original Greek, it would have been one long 202-word run-on epic Jewish love poem, where Paul's just gushing, this is what is yours in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, just over and over and over again. And verse 3 is his kind of summary of the whole 3 through 14, where he says that we bless, meaning we praise, we worship, we adore, we follow Jesus because he has blessed us, which means that we are divinely favored with every spiritual blessing. Paul says, before we get to everything else we're going to talk about, church at Ephesus, before we get to talking about your marriage, before we get to talking about sex or forgiveness or money or the church or jobs or workplace, all of that, I need you to get something. You are spiritually blessed in Christ Jesus. It's the beginning of all of life. It's the beginning of all of life with God as a Christian, that you are blessed spiritually in Christ Jesus. Not a little bit, not sort of not halfway. You are blessed in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now we're about to break down what those blessings are, but there's three things I need you to understand about these spiritual blessings. Number one is that they're free. Spiritual blessings are free by nature. By definition, a blessing is a gift. It's free. You don't earn a blessing. 
You don't achieve a blessing. You don't work for a blessing. If someone gives you something and says, hey man, I just want to bless you, but, but before you get this, you got to work 10 hours. It's not a blessing. That's a paycheck. Right? If someone says, hey, I want to give you this thing. It's a blessing, but then you got to pay it back in a year at 10%. It's not a blessing. It's a loan. Right? A blessing is free. It's a free gift. The second thing we see about these blessings is that they're spiritual. All right? I don't want you to mishear anything I'm about to say tonight. Okay? I already preached on this two weeks ago. You can go back and listen to it. I'm not talking about material blessings. I'm not talking about getting paid. I'm not talking about having more money or a safe house. I'm not talking about all these comforts of the world. I'm talking about spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly places. The third thing is that gospel blessings are more rich or beautiful than you could ever imagine or dream. They're more rich and beautiful than any of us could ever imagine or dream. The Puritans used to talk about uh, the gospel back in the 1800s as a diamond. And they said a diamond, if you hold it up to the sun and you kind of turn it different ways, it's going to shine and reflect differently depending on how you hold it up. So ladies, you know this, when you get engaged, right, you hold up your diamond ring and you can kind of look at it from all the different angles, all the right lighting, all of that. The, the Puritans said, hey, this is the gospel. This is what it means. It's one essential truth, salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel is. But as you hold it up to the sun, as you look at it from different angles, it starts reflecting and you see different truths that are all in this one essential truth. Paul says that's what's happening here. And I think what happens, what happens is we can get so locked in when we hear the gospel, we can get so locked into thinking that it just is forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is an, is an essential part of the gospel, right? Forgiveness of sins is crucial. Yes, you don't have the gospel without forgiveness of sins, but it is so much more than that. So Paul's going to get into over the next few verses. He's going to outline eight specific spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to look at all eight, and I'm going to warn you out of the jump, it's going to be a lot. And I kind of want it to feel like a lot. I want it to feel a little bit overwhelming because the love of God for you in Christ Jesus is overwhelming. It's such good news. And so I just want you to rest in this. I want you to hear it. I want you to receive it. That if you're in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, these eight things are true about you right now. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, these eight things are available to you right now. Let's get into it. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. All right, eight spiritual blessings for all Christians. This is what Paul's talking about, Ephesians 1. Number one, you are chosen by the Father. You are chosen by the Father. Paul says here in verse 4, before the foundation of the world. So here's the thing, God has always existed. I know, it's weird, it's hard to wrap our minds around, it's a mystery. God has always existed. God has no beginning. God has no creator. He's always been. He always is, and he always will be. The Bible says that he has existed from eternity past to eternity present to eternity future. And, the, and Paul's saying here, before the foundation of the world means that at some point before Genesis 1, before the beginning of Scripture, before God created and laid the world out, he did something. He purposed a plan. God made up his mind that he was going to bring together a people for himself. This has God's, been God's plan all along to bring together a people that would worship him and glorify him and honor him as God. And this was true in the Old Testament with the people of Israel, right? All the way back at the beginning of Genesis, God makes a covenant promise with a people and says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. 
If you keep reading, the story is so much bigger than that. God says, I'm going to send a Messiah, a Redeemer, my son, Jesus Christ, to come through the line of Abraham to redeem a people, to bring a chosen people for myself, not based on ethnic identity, but based on spiritual identity in Christ. This was God's plan. He declared it. As we see in verse 5, he predestined it to happen. And listen, this is good news because if God says something is going to happen, guess what? It's going to happen. And it's hard for us to understand this because we live such lies of uncertainty, right? Like we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Some of you are like, yeah, I do. I got my schedule. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen next week, next month. Think about a month ago. You didn't know what was going to happen. Think about last March. You didn't know what was going to happen. We live lives of such uncertainty. Here's, here's a deep truth about God that I hope brings so much comfort to you. God has never been caught off guard. You think about that? God has never been surprised. Like God has never had to call the, oh no, what are we going to do meeting? He's always in control. So before creation, if God predetermined, I'm going to bring together a people for myself, here's the good news. He's going to accomplish that. So when Paul says in verse 4 that we're chosen by God, and in verse 5 when he says we're predestined for adoption as sons to God, he's not using some theological terms to try to divide or to try to have something fun to argue over in seminary or just to try to bring up some categories. He's doing this to bring comfort to your soul. God chose you. And if you're in Christ, here's what you can be certain of. If God said this is what's going to happen, it's going to happen. He chose you chose you. It means you're his. It's a deep truth that's meant to bring comfort and hope and security and joy and humility. God chose me. This isn't just Paul's theology. This is Jesus. John 15, 16. He says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go bear fruit. This is Peter who calls the church in 1 Peter 2, 9, a chosen people. What that means is that salvation starts as a work with God a work of God, but it's also going to end as a work of God. If he started it, he's also going to uphold it. He's going to complete it, which means that you can rest. Your soul can rest. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, notice this next phrase, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Number two, we are holy and blameless before God. We are holy and blameless before God. This is important. Notice the language of the text. He says he chose us before the foundation of the world, not because we were holy and blameless, but what? That we should be holy and blameless. He doesn't choose us because we cleaned ourselves up. He chooses to clean us up. Some of us, we hear that God chose us, and we think about uh, playground kickball, right? Anybody else love kickball back in third grade? Yeah, the people that got picked first. That's right, Cole, yeah. Right, we think about playground kickball. We think, all right, if God chooses, then it's gotta be like playground kickball. Obviously, God looked out, and he saw me, and he saw my potential, and he said, that guy can kick really well, and his speed down the first baseline is incredible. So I'm gonna choose them. They're on the team. And it puffs us up with pride. Yeah, God chose me because he saw what I could do for the kingdom. I was gonna be an awesome evangelist. I was gonna share the gospel a whole bunch. I was gonna be a great preacher. I was gonna do this. God chose me because he saw my potential. It puffs us up with pride. Others of us, it crushes us. Because we say, okay, well, either God chose me because of my potential and I'm just not living up to that, or, well, there's no way that God could ever choose me. I'm the last pick, which actually in playground kickball isn't actually a pick. It's just you get forced on a team, but it's not important. 
Here's the thing. God didn't choose you because of your potential or your lack thereof. He chose you because of his power. He chose you not because you were holy and blameless, but to make you holy and blameless. Here's what the Bible says, is that when God brings us, he sees us as rebellious to him. He sees us as his enemy, as running away from him. And he says, hey, in your sin, in your wretchedness, in your brokenness, in your waywardness, I'm going to bring you back to myself. And the moment you profess faith in Christ, at that instant, you are declared positionally right with God. Positionally holy and blameless before God. I don't think y'all are getting how good news this is. You, in your sin, in your brokenness, the minute you profess faith, God now views you as he views Jesus. Righteous, holy. And then what happens is the journey of Christian maturity, what the Bible calls sanctification, where you learn more and more to live out that holiness in everyday life. Right? You're positionally holy immediately before God, and then you spend your life by the power of the Holy Spirit learning what it means to be practically holy and practically blameless, but in an instant, God says, I chose you not because you were right, not because you were clean, not because you were free of sin, but to declare you free of sin with Christ's righteousness. It's the good news of the gospel, that he chose us to make us holy and blameless. Let's keep going. In love, verse 4, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Number three, we are adopted as sons. We are adopted as sons. That that specific use of the word sons here is important, right? So you might be thinking, you mean children? No, I mean sons. And here's what's important about that. Paul's not being exclusive. He's actually being radically inclusive. In his day, sons were the ones who would receive an inheritance. Only sons. Daughters would not get an inheritance from God. And so when Paul here says you're adopted as sons, what he means is the good news that both men and women, all of us in the church, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of age, regardless of background, any of that, he says all of you are included in the inheritance that is yours in Christ Jesus. It's being radically inclusive. All of you, you get the inheritance. You get to be a child of God. You get to be a son. You get all of the rights and privileges that come with being a son. Man, this one the most has been so crazy to me over the last 13 days. And I know some of you grew up in church, and so you're like, yeah, we're adopted. I am who you say I am. Woo. You're adopted as a child of God. All right, I need you to get this. Acts 2, right? Nine weeks ago, we talked about Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, where he gets up, right? The Holy Spirit comes down. Peter is filled by the Holy Spirit. He gets up, and he tells the Jewish people who were not at the crucifixion of Jesus that they are guilty of the crucifixion of Jesus. And what he's talking about there is theologically, all of us, because of our sin and rebellion against God, are just as guilty of the death of Jesus as the Roman guards who actually nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. I don't have a category for the type of love and the type of grace that looks at a person who murdered my son and says, you are now adopted. Like, I I was trying to get my head around this. I don't have a category. I have a one-year-old. She just turned one. I have a beautiful one-year-old little baby girl. I don't have a category I have a little, okay, I have a little bit of a category for like, yeah, I could forgive, right? Like if someone murdered my daughter, I have a, I have a tiny, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not large, a tiny category that's like, okay, I could maybe eventually forgive you. 
Like I could maybe eventually go, okay, this is, I get it. I forgive you because of Jesus has forgiven me for some, like I have a little bit of a category for that. I have no idea the type of love that says you killed my child. Welcome into the family. I don't get that kind of love. Like, what kind of confidence do you wake up in the morning if you get down deep into your soul the surety that you are guilty for the death of his son and yet God says you are now my child with all rights and privileges and responsibilities and inheritance of a son? Like you, that should blow your mind. And so I'm sitting there in my basement on Monday morning at 7 a.m. and I'm weeping because I'm like, God, I, I, my sin, my sin, your sin put Jesus on the cross and yet God says yes and through that death I have made you now children of mine. Forever. You don't give that up. You don't forfeit that. You can't, I messed up, I wonder if I'm still, no, you're in the family. You killed God's son, there's nothing else you could do. You're in the family. You're his forever. You are a child of God forever in Christ. You're adopted. Guys, that's, that's three of eight. What? Three of eight. Let's keep going. Verse five. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He lavished. We have no concept for how much. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Let's do four and five together. Number four, we are redeemed by the Son. We are redeemed by the Son. Number five, we are forgiven of our sins. We are redeemed by the Son. We are forgiven of our sins. Let's talk about this idea of redemption. All right, so the word redemption, scripture, it just means to buy back or to buy out of. So think about uh, if you were in college and you wrongly parked at the college of student apartments, right? And you got your car towed like I did too many times. In the morning, you got to go and you got to what? You got to buy back your car out of the impound lot, right? You got to redeem it. This word, when it's used in scripture, nine times out of 10, it's meant to point back to what God did for the Israelites in Exodus, where he redeems, he brings them out of slavery in Egypt, and so the implication that Paul's trying to get out here when he says that we have redemption, when we have forgiveness, is that we are in need of redemption. Right? There's something that we are in captivity of that we need to be set free from. And some of us are very aware that that is sin. Right? Some of us are very aware of the captivity that our sin and brokenness has placed in our lives. Some of us are very aware of the addictions that we can't escape. The sinful habits we've learned to use to cope through life, the, the captivity, the slavery that we have to other people's opinions and approval of us. So we know because of that captivity that we need so much more than just some light behavior improvements. Right? We need so much more than just some good ideas and some good tips. We need so much more than just some more self-love and positivity. We need redemption. We need freedom. And Paul says, this is how you get that redemption. This is how you get that freedom. The very next phrase, through the forgiveness of our trespasses. In other words, for redemption to happen, forgiveness must happen. All right, in order for there to be redemption, there has to be forgiveness. Whenever a wrong of any kind occurs, there's always a debt that has to be paid for that wrong. So 
Uh, I think a really good story that illustrates this. Growing up, uh, my older brothers were friends. I had two older brothers, and they were friends with uh, twins that, for our story, we will call uh, John and Mike. All right, and John and Mike were, they were just the people that you, you knew were going to break stuff. You have any of those friends? You know what I mean? Who it's like, if I give this to you, it's only a matter of time before you break it. It doesn't matter what it is. You're going to break it. Uh, and so growing up, they broke our go-kart, which was very sad. They ran it right dead set into a tree. Uh, they broke our trampoline at one point. Uh, they broke one of our friend's noses because they thought if they put a pillow before they punch him, it wasn't going to break their nose. It broke his nose. Uh, they broke their ankle. Like, they, were just, they just were bruisers. So you know what I mean? Like, they're those types of people that just break things. And so we were uh, going to the mall one day like you do as an early 2000s teenager. And we were heading back from the mall. And my brother stopped at a stoplight. And Mike did not. And rear-ended his car. So we're driving the rest of the way home, and my brother calls my dad. And a lot of you guys know my dad. You know him to be a very gentle, patient, kind man. That was not the way it was growing up. He was very feisty. Uh, and so he calls my dad, and my dad's just fuming. He's very, very upset. And so we get home, and we, like, there's like four or five of us all loaded, or four or five cars, and all of us loaded up. And I remember it to this day, because we still make fun of my dad for it. Uh, we all pull into the backyard, and my dad just comes careening, like just boom, out into the back porch. And I remember it clear as day. He didn't yell, but it was like that firm dad. You know what I mean? And he goes outside and he goes, just so clear. He says, if your last name is not Olsen, go home. And y'all, I've never seen 17-year-old boys move that quickly. All right? Like, it was like, boom, scattered, go, boom, you guys are on your own. Sorry, Olsen's like, get going, whatever. Uh, and Mike, I remember Mike was like, does that include me? Can I just go? And so he just takes off too. He's like, I don't know. I think I'm in trouble, but I'm going. Here's the deal. Mike created a debt, right? He crashed the car. There was a debt that had to be paid. Someone had to pay for the repair of my brother's car. Here's the options that you have here. Option number one, Mike pays. Option number two, my dad pays. Now, you might say there's a third option that you're not thinking about, Tim, and that third option is that your dad can just kind of shrug his shoulders and say, no big deal, whatever, to which I say, well, that's kind of presumptive of you to assume he can do that. But also, that's not actually forgiving the debt because then he still has to pay, even if he tells Mike it's not a big deal. Here's what I'm trying to say with this. True forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one doing the forgiving. When there is a debt that is created, someone has to pay the debt. When there's a debt that happens with the car, someone has to pay. The car's not going to fix itself. And Paul is saying here that our sin has created a debt to God. Because of our brokenness, because of our rebellion, there's a debt that has to be paid. So forgiveness for God doesn't mean that he can simply go, yeah, whatever, no big deal, come on. Somebody has to pay the debt. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. It wasn't just a theoretical debt. It wasn't a theoretical cost that he had to pay. Jesus actually died. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die because of sin, and Jesus says, I'm going to take that one. He dies on the cross paying our debt. I was talking to my dad about this story, telling him I wanted to use it uh, for the sermon. I wanted to run it by him because I was going to call him feisty, and I wanted to make sure I would still be in good graces. And he said, hey, Tim, did I ever tell you how that story ended? I said, no, you didn't. He was like, yeah, here's what happened. I called Mike's dad, and I said, hey, here's what I want. I want Mike to write a letter to me taking full responsibility. So Mike did. He wrote a letter. He said, I'm guilty. It's my bad. I messed up. I, ran, I didn't stop at the stop sign. I crashed the car. And guess what? My dad paid the car repairs. That's the gospel, right? The gospel is, hey, you created the debt, and you own it before the Lord, and you say, hey, this one's on me. I broke your law, God. I rebelled against you. I sinned against you. And then guess what? Jesus pays the debt. What a beautiful picture of the gospel, 
right? That we owe a debt that we cannot and could not and will not ever be able to pay. And Jesus says, hey, take that debt. I'm putting it on me. Own it. I'm a sinner. I'm rebellious. I'm in need of a savior. We're given the righteousness of Christ and forgiveness of sins. Verse nine, let's keep going. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We'll do the last three kind of quickly. Number six, we are a part of God's redemptive plan for the whole world. We are a part of God's redemptive plan for the whole world. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just about your personal salvation. It wasn't just for us individually to be redeemed, but God has a cosmic plan that includes the redemption of all created things. The redemption not only of souls, but of all the physical creation. He's not just making us new. God is making all things new, which means if you're suffering from sin that was done to you, there's good news for that. If you're frustrated beyond belief at horrific act, at a horrific act that we just keep hearing about and seeing week after week after week, there's good news for you. If you're broken over the pain around you, there's good news for you. God is bringing hope, not just for you and your sin, but for all of creation. Ephesians 1.10 says that he's uniting all things to himself. He's putting all things back together. He's righting all wrongs. He's redeeming and restoring all that is broken. And we get to play a part in that. You have a calling. You have a purpose in God's redemptive plan. Verse 11, in him we obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Number seven, we are heirs to a forever kingdom. We're heirs to a forever kingdom. Our inheritance is not just a new heart, a new self, personally being redeemed. We get a forever kingdom where we reign forever celebrating King Jesus. Romans 8, 17 calls us co-heirs with Christ. Everything that is his is ours. Theologian John Stott says it this way. He says, We are told that we shall see God in his Christ and worship him. We will be like him. We will enjoy perfect fellowship with each other. I love this part. For God's inheritance is, will not be a little private party for each individual, but rather among the saints. As we join that great multitude which no man could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I don't know what your view of heaven and eternity with God is, but if it's you just chilling with Jesus and doesn't have a category for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation celebrating the King forever, you don't have the right picture of eternity. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping the throne together. I don't know much about eternity. I do know that. It's one of the guarantees we're given. Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The slide is wrong. We're going to go to verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Number eight, last one, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Here's what that means. Everything I just said is true about you in Christ Jesus is true and will always be true. It's a guarantee. You're like, is this true on Tuesday? This is true on Tuesday. If you're in Christ and you're like, okay, this is so true of me. This is awesome. Uh, guess what? Six months from now, it's going to be true. Saturday, it's going to be true. Next week, when you mess up again, it's going to be true. A month later, when you're fighting with your spouse, it's going to be true. Two years from now, when you're yelling at your kids, it's going to be true. 
sealed by the Holy Spirit. I love this. Uh, my, my wife's family is a bunch of Texas ranchers. Like they're straight up like Texas cowboys. It's pretty awesome. Uh, and I didn't know that. She was like, no, they're cowboys. And then I went to visit and it was like, whoa, they're cowboys. Uh, they have like cattle and land and farm. It's all this really cool stuff. And they literally spend their days on horses as cowboys. Um, but I remember the first time I went to visit and you're kind of driving along and it's all flat and you can just see for miles and miles and miles, except for like every so often there will be a little group of trees. And I was like, what's the trees? And she's like, oh, those are houses. That's how you know there's a house there. And I was like, that's weird. Uh, and then we pull up to a house. Most of the farms have gates. And on the top of the gate, there's a symbol or a brand, as they call it in Texas, uh, that represents that family farm. And so what you do is you have a symbol. So for her family, it's the Holt family farm. And they have a symbol that represents the Holt family farm, a brand. And what the farmers do is they brand all of their cattle with that symbol. Because what happens is cows can be kind of crazy. They can be a little silly. They can get away from the group. I don't know what a group of cows is called, but they get away from it. And they go somewhere else. And so what that brand says is that another cowboy comes up upon that cow and says, hey, this isn't my cow. Who does this belong to? They can see the brand and go, hey, I know who that cow belongs to. And even if that cow wanders, that cow does not cease to belong to the cowboy, to the farm. Jesus says that's what the Holy Spirit is for us. He's a seal, not a physical branding, not a physical seal, but a spiritual one. He seals our hearts. You don't keep yourself. God keeps you. You don't keep yourself in his love. God keeps you. Listen, I, I love this. I, I, I'm still working out the theological implications of it. I love this. But, but a, a friend of mine one time, he said, hey, listen, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But the good news is you can't because he seals you. You didn't start your salvation, God chose you, and you don't progress in your salvation, the Holy Spirit does that, and guess what? You don't prolong and keep your salvation, that's also God. All of it is a work of God. And so as we read Ephesians 1, I don't know what other posture to take, but wow, God does all of it, all of it, from beginning to end, all of it. He seals you, keeps you, you're his. If you're in Christ, you are his forever. It's true. It's the good news of the gospel. Eight things I hope you correctly feel overwhelmed. Here's how I want to close this. I knew there was, I told you there's a conclusion. Here we go. Over the next 13 weeks, we're going to break down a lot of this book, and we're going to talk about how the gospel applies to your marriage, how it applies to how you approach sex, how it applies to money, how it applies to the church, all that kind of stuff. But here's, here's kind of the one thing I want you to get today. As followers of Jesus, we often live with competing realities. All right, track with me. We live with competing realities. So the Bible says we are chosen by God, and yet still we live unwanted and unloved. The Bible says that we are holy and blameless before God, and yet we still live lives wrecked by shame and by guilt. The Bible says we are adopted as children of God, but we still live as spiritual orphans. The Bible says we're redeemed, we're set free by the blood of Christ, but we still live in bondage to sin. The Bible says we are forgiven, but we still live as if we owe a debt for sin that we have to repay. The Bible says we're a part of God's big redemptive plan, but we still live selfish, self-seeking lives. The Bible says we are heirs to a forever kingdom, but we still live as if this world is our home. The Bible says we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and guaranteed an inheritance, but we still live as if God is not in control, that the future is still uncertain. So what we're invited into in this book for the next 14 weeks, the reality that this would be true about our lives, this reality that the gospel does in fact change everything. 
It changes everything. It changes our church. It changes our lives. It changes our marriages. It changes our families. It changes our workplace. It changes our city. It changes our budget. It changes everything. The gospel changes everything. And so the question is, how do we actually learn to put into practice this life-changing gospel? And it's through verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, this key phrase of the whole book and the whole passage, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How do we learn to live in light of the reality that the gospel changes everything? By learning to live in Christ. In Christ. I don't know if you picked up on how many times Paul used that phrase. It's nine times. 36 times in the whole book of Ephesians. Nine times in this little passage alone. You are in Christ. You are a Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have what's called union with him. You are united to him. It's the central truth of the Christian faith that you and Christ are now united as one, which means that his death is your death and his life is your life. You have union with Christ. You are united to him. It's this key essential. You got to get this into your head and remind each other and yourself over and over and over again. I am united to Christ. I'm adopted. How? In Christ. I'm forgiven. How? In Christ. I'm redeemed. How? In Christ. All of these things are true for you in Christ Jesus. I love the way that the pastor Tony Meredith says it. He says this. He says, only by being in Christ can one have access to every spiritual blessing. If you are in Christ, then, as John MacArthur says, Christ's riches are your riches. His resources are your resources. His righteousness is your righteousness. His power is your power. I don't know if y'all are getting this because I'm not getting any amens. His righteousness is your righteousness. His power is your power. His position is our position. Amen? Where he is, we are, and what he has, we have. Listen to me, church, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ, which means you are chosen, and you are redeemed, and you are adopted, and you are forgiven, and you are set free, and you have an inheritance, and you are a part of a purpose to redeem all things to God, and that is guaranteed now and forever. What greater news do we have than that? That we are in Christ. We are in Christ. We're in Christ. I think that's worth celebrating. And pray for us, then we're going to do that. God, thank you for who you are. God, thanks for your word. God, thanks for Ephesians 1. Thanks that you meet us sometimes on Monday mornings at 7 a.m. in a basement. The gospel knows no walls. It knows no boundaries. It doesn't just fit in a little 5 p.m. on a Sunday night type of gathering, God, but that you break forth in your goodness and in your truth to compel our hearts about what is true. God, and there are lies in our head. There are competing realities in our head as followers of Jesus that are fighting against us, that want to tell us lies, that we are slaves to sin, but we're not. That we have to pay a debt to you to get you to love us, but we don't. The future is uncertain and we don't know what's to come, but we do. This is how it's always going to be, but it's not. The world is too broken and too messed up and it's never going to get better, but it is. That we're unwanted, that we're unloved, God, but you love us. And so I pray that your spirit will move in power to speak truth over our hearts. That In Christ, if we are a follower of you, if we have put our faith in Jesus, that it's not about how much faith or how much we do. It's not about earning more. That we have the fullness of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus now. It is true. And we need you. And we love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.